Please turn with me in your Bibles to the 15th chapter of John's Gospel. John 15, we'll pick up the reading this morning in verse 8, and we'll read through chapter 16, the first part of verse 4. This is God's word. Please give it your full attention. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have not been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. As someone who enjoys science fiction and fantasy books and movies, one of my favorite parts of scripture is found in the middle of the book of Revelation, generally chapters 12, 13, and 14, right there in the middle of that great prophetic book. In that section of God's revelation, he gives this fantastical picture of a great cosmic war. On the one side of the war is a great and fearsome dragon, along with a vast number of fallen angels who fight alongside of him. And also on earth two great fearful beasts, one from the sea and one from the earth. That's one side of this great cosmic war. On the other side of this cosmic war is this gloriously arrayed woman and this male child that is born to her who is destined to be the king of all eternity. And then, alongside of them, all the great armies of heaven. This war, which started in heaven, 
was ultimately and essentially won when the dragon's attempt to devour this male child from the woman failed. And the child was raised up and ascended to his throne in heaven and was given authority far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, according to Paul in in Ephesians chapter 1. But even though the decisive battle has been won, and essentially the outcome of the war is ensured, the war rages on, according to Scripture. Revelation 12 describes this in graphic terms as this angry and frustrated dragon who was unable to touch the sun unleashes that fury and angry upon the woman and her offspring. Let me just read to you a couple of verses from Revelation chapter 12. First of all, verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And then skipping down to the end of that chapter, verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The war continues to rage on. The dragon is defeated, but he's still very active, and all of his fury and frustration has been unleashed upon the offspring of the woman. Now, the language of all that is, sounds like something straight out of some fantasy novel. It's all very metaphorical, symbolic, But the war that it describes, don't ever forget this, the war that it describes is real. And it's a daily reality. It's one of the reasons it's a shame that the church doesn't spend more time reading the book of Revelation. Because the book of Revelation is not about some weird Middle Eastern events that are going to happen some point in the future. It's mostly, primarily, about this real, vibrant, powerful conflict that's going on in the spiritual realm and is being reflected in the physical realm every day that we live in this fallen world. In the section of scripture, this part of the gospel that we've come to now, Jesus is on the threshold of going to battle against the dragon. The dragon is going to attempt to devour him. He's about to go to the cross. And as he does so, as we've seen in these last couple of chapters, he's preparing his disciples for what's to come. Because after his crucifixion and his resurrection and his ascension to the throne, they are going to have to continue on in this fallen world to bear witness to him, and he needs to prepare them for that. And in this section that we read this morning, he's preparing them for the fury of the dragon that is about to be unleashed upon them because he failed to defeat the Christ. He says to his disciples, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, 
they will also persecute you. This is a message not just for the apostles. It's a message for the church. It's the consistent message of the whole New Testament. Over in chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says to his disciples, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Peter will later say in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, speaking in the context of persecution of the church, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You see, we've been living in this country in the afterglow of the blessings of a country that was largely established in the context of a biblical worldview and biblical morals. And we have tried in this wonderful experiment for the last couple of centuries to establish a country where there's true religious freedom, where, in a general sense, biblical morality and biblical worldview can set the guidelines for our culture, and we can be free to worship the true God and to bear witness to the gospel. But things are changing dramatically. To us in the past, it would be a strange thing to face overt, painful suffering for our faith in Christ. But those days are quickly coming to an end. Jesus says, as we saw in chapter 16, verse 1, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. He's saying it's essential to your spiritual health that you understand the reality of this spiritual war that is going on around you and the fury of the dragon that is against you, lest you become disillusioned with the suffering that comes as a result of it and fall away. I think that message is needed more in the church now than ever, the church in America, because we've had it easy. It's been comfortable. We've had favored status among those with any religious persuasion. But as you have seen, we live in a culture where the hatred of the world for Christ and the hatred of the world for the church is becoming more and more obvious every day. So this passage is very important to us. And what Jesus does here is important for us to understand. He explains to us in clear terms why the world hates us. It's important that we understand that. Not only that the hatred exists, which we need to, to realize and we need to realize fast. That hatred exists and we need to understand why it's there so that we can respond accordingly. Jesus gives his disciples here three reasons why the world hates us. First of all, the world hates us because of our otherworldliness, that we are not of this world. That's the first reason that the world hates us. The second reason that the world hates us is because we proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. And thirdly, the world hates us because we expose their guilt before God. Before I get into those reasons, I need to answer one question because it may not be clear in our thinking. Who or what do we mean by, quote-unquote, the world? What is the world? 
Well, let me give you just a very quick review of biblical anthropology and biblical sociology. Because it's very different from what you're going to hear out there in the academic community or just out there in life in general. According to God's word, as God sees reality on earth, we are all born with a mind and heart of a rebel. Paul spells this out in the book of Romans. That we, as with our fallen nature, as sinners born into this world, we refuse to honor God and refuse to give thanks to him, and so he hands us over, he gives us over to a debased mind. And Paul goes on in chapter 3 of Romans to describe the effect of that on our nature, our hearts and our minds. What does it look like? This is what it says in Romans 3, beginning in verse 10. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That was our nature as we were born into this world. That is the nature, the mind and heart of the majority of the people that you will deal with as you live out there in this fallen world day in and day out. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, it, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We need to come back to that again and again in Scripture because we are sinners ourselves. And we have a very horizontal perspective on the world and the people around us. And when I read what the Scriptures say about the true nature, the minds and hearts of my neighbors, who are very nice people, law-abiding, fun people, I love to talk to them, they have normal lives, look a lot like my life, it's very easy to forget that their nature is to be hostile to the God that I love and serve. And such was I at one time. So that's human nature. That's biblical anthropology. That's our understanding of who we are as individuals. Well, the world is what happens when you take a bunch of sinners with that mind and that heart and that rebellious attitude and organize them together into governments and societies and religions and then you have this kind of a corporate identity that is based in that sinful, rebellious nature. The Tower of Babel has been duplicated over and over again as the world organizes itself, mutual cooperation for their own prideful and sinful reasons. And as a corporate identity, they set themselves up against God and ultimately against the church. Okay, well, that's the world. And we're not part of that. By God's grace, Jesus says he's chosen us out of that. We're not part of it. We're not a part of the movement. Why don't they just ignore us? Especially in this day and age where we have such a small voice in the midst of all these loud voices. Why don't they just ignore us? Why do they hate us so much? Let's go to that first reason that Jesus lays out for us here. The world hates our otherworldliness. The world hates that we are not of the world, that we are not of the same nature that they are. 
That's what Jesus alludes to in verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, if you're sitting here this morning and this is all new to you, and you're trying to get your head around how Christians see themselves and how Christians see the world, understand that none of this is said in pride on the part of myself or any other Christian. Because the scriptures make it clear that apart from the grace of God, we would all be of cut from the same cloth. We would all be of the same nature. In Romans 9, where Paul is talking about this grand and glorious doctrine of election, in Romans 9, Paul talks about the potter, who represents God, and he says that the potter makes vessels for honorable use and vessels for dishonorable use out of the same clay. Out of this fallen, sinful, rebellious human nature, or to put it in the language that Jesus uses here, he chose us out of that. And the potter has remade us. We are in the world, but not of it. We were once just as they are, but Christ chose us in order to save us, not based upon anything within us whatsoever. And he has made us to be new creatures. He has set us apart to be holy, to be saints. We are born again. That's the clear and consistent message of this Gospel of John. We are born again with new hearts by God's grace, new natures, new life, new desires, new values, new morals, new goals because of his grace. And you know what? Even though we live in a culture where it seems like the only principle by which all social interaction is to be guided is this vague concept of tolerance, what you see in God, from God's perspective in Scripture is that the world is extremely intolerant of this new nature that's been given to us by grace. Peter, again, Peter has a lot to say about persecution. He addresses this issue in chapter 4. Listen to what he says, verses 3 and 4. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. They are surprised that we are not driven by the same desires that they are. They are surprised by our standards and our goals in life. And because we stand apart from them, they malign us. They despise us. A few weeks ago, when we were looking at the earlier section in, the, in, in John 15, Jesus had this whole section where he talks about the fact that he had chosen the disciples, his disciples, to be his friends. We talked about what that friendship looks like. What he's saying here in this very next section is that if you're going to be a friend of Jesus, if you're going to be Jesus' friend, then by necessity, you become an enemy of the world. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
Seek to live a life consistent with your new identity as a friend of Jesus, as a disciple of his, and you will be persecuted. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you can't be friends with unbelievers in the world's definition of friends. I have many unbelievers that are friends. But there is a spiritual sense of friendship that the scriptures talks about, which basically says, if you are of the nature of the world and you are, it's, if one person is of the nature of the world and you are of the nature of Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit and are born again and have this new nature, then it is impossible for you to be friends with the world in the spiritual sense of the term. That's what James is talking about in chapter 4 when he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. It's the same message that Paul is trying to get across in 2 Corinthians 6. Let me read that portion to you. You're familiar with this. 2 Corinthians 6, where Paul talks about yoking. We tend to only appeal to this passage when we want to say to our kids, don't date unbelievers, don't marry unbelievers. And certainly it absolutely and in some way ultimately applies there. But it applies to all of life. Paul does not make any reference to marriage, particularly in the context of this passage at all. He's talking about life in general. And listen to what he says. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. We are not to be yoked together with unbelievers. We are not to be in relationships with other unbelievers in such a way that it compromises our witness and influences us to be unfaithful to our Lord. That's what he's talking about. That's what spiritual friendship with unbelievers is. It puts you in a situation where you're choosing between your love and affection and your standing with your unbelieving worldly rebellious friends against the Lord of your life, the one who died to save you. We are not to be unequally yoked. This is not a call for Oakwood Presbyterian Church to be the next Westboro Baptist Church. It is not a license to be obnoxious and judgmental. And I think this is something that we, in this transitional period in which we live, we need to study the scriptures deeply and we need to have some serious face-to-face, heart-to-heart talks about what it means to be friends of Jesus Christ in a culture like this. We had a gathering of several couples from the church at one of, the, uh, one of our friends' homes the other night. And we got on to this subject, particularly the issue that as it's been raised in relation to the sin of homosexuality. This has put Christians in a very difficult place because the world, in the sense in which John refers to it here, the world in rebellion and opposition against God, is 
using the issue of the sexual sin of homosexuality to drive forward their agenda of freedom from the will of God. And they are using it to beat back the church. And they have won the battle in the courts and in public opinion. And the church is in a difficult place of saying, what does it mean for us to be friends of Jesus in this context? How do we love those who are caught up in the sin of homosexuality just the same way that we love those who are caught up in the sin of adultery or the sin of thievery or the sin of pride or the sin of slander? How do we love people, take a stand for holiness, have a passion for holiness, and still love those who are living in those sins? And it's very difficult when the world is shoving that particular issue in our face and seeking to use it to marginalize us and ultimately, I believe, to persecute us. It's a hard question. I don't have any easy answers for you. We spent two, a couple hours the other night trying to sharpen one another, help us to know what it means to be wise and innocent in this issue, what it means to not unnecessarily alienate those to whom we're trying to bring the gospel of peace and truth and freedom from sin, while still not compromising on the purity and holiness that God requires of us. How do we love our enemy? Well, that brings me to the second reason that the world hates us, as Jesus lays it out here. The world hates us because of our proclamation that Jesus is Lord. The world hates us for the very reason that we pursue holiness. We don't pursue holiness so that we can sit up on some kind of pedestal or or high step and look down our noses at people and say how much better we are than other sinners. That's not why we pursue holiness. We pursue holiness because our eyes have been opened and our hearts have been changed and we see that Jesus Christ is Lord. And walking in his ways is the ways of peace and truth and life. That's why we pursue holiness. But the world hates us because Jesus is our Lord. Don't take the world's hatred personally. It's not about you. It's about who your Lord is. Jesus says here, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. All these things they will do to you on account of my name. What he's saying here is that the more we obey Christ, the more we praise Christ, the more we are like Christ, the less popular we will be in the world, in this system of rebellion against our creator. Now, you may take exception to that. You may say, well, to be honest with you, when I'm reading the media and reading news outlets and watching television programs and listening to public opinion out there, you know, we actually rarely hear a word spoken directly against Jesus Christ. He's actually still kind of a popular figure. So what do you mean that they hate Christ? The question I would ask is, What Christ are they talking about? Who is the Jesus that they think so well of? Remember what Jesus said? Beware when all men speak well of you. 
And he knew that about himself more than anything else. Because the Jesus that they speak well of is not the Jesus who is eternally equal in essence with God the Father, is not the Jesus Christ who created all things by the power of his word. The Jesus Christ that they're talking about is not the one who became a perfect man and dwelt among us. He's not the Jesus who died on the cross as a blood atonement for our sins. He's not the Jesus Christ who conquered sin and death by being raised from the dead. He's not the Jesus Christ who has been ascended to the right hand of the Father and rules with all power and authority over all men. He's not the Jesus Christ who will be the judge of all men at the end of time before whom everyone will stand and give an account. That's not the Jesus Christ that they all love and admire out there in the world. The Jesus Christ that they love and admire is some kind of a vague incarnation of hippy-dippy 1960s theology and philosophy and morality. And to whatever degree we are true to the biblical Christ, the real Christ, the historical Christ, we're not going to be popular in the world. You know, we may be admired for our Christ-like character and commitment from a distance. But the hostility and hatred of the world is going to come out when they understand that the reason that we are who we are is because he is changing us and we live under his lordship. He is king and he is judge. Who is the Lord is the most important question that any society has to answer. Who is the Lord? If you go back into the history of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire was successful because as they went through civilized world, conquering tribes and conquering nations, by and large, they allowed those peoples to have a great deal of freedom. Freedom of religion. Freedom to set their own laws, to set their own morality, to run their own culture. He gave them a lot of, the Roman Empire would give them a lot of freedom within their own bounds as long as they would top it all off by saying, Caesar is Lord. And ultimately, Caesar is God. They were successful as a world empire because they would give the illusion of freedom while ultimately reserving to themselves the right to be the ultimate authority in life. And that's the real issue behind the cultural and political battles that are going on in our country right now. The whole Hobby Lobby thing, to whatever degree you're familiar with that case, it's not about women's rights. It's not about contraception. It's not about health care. The bottom line question to that whole controversy is, who is Lord of the conscience? Who is the Lord of your conscience? And it has become unacceptable, increasingly unacceptable in this culture, to say, Jesus is Lord of my conscience. Jesus is Lord of my life. Jesus is Lord of my bedroom. Jesus is Lord of my social interactions. Jesus is Lord of my marriage. Jesus is Lord of my parenting. Jesus is Lord of everything. It's not ever going to be a popular message. We think we got along okay with that in this culture, but it was largely a mirage. And the true nature of the world is asserting itself. This brings me to the last reason that Jesus spells out for the world's hatred of us. The world hates us because we expose their guilt. 
Let me read for you again verses 22 and verse 24. If I had not come, Jesus said, and spoken to them, they would have not been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. Now understand that Jesus isn't saying here that the Jews to whom he primarily came in his earthly ministry, he's not saying they would have been innocent before God if he had not come. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, he's, he's alluding to this biblical principle that, is that we are judged according to the light, by which, the light that we have received. We are judged according to the amount of revelation from God that we have received. Revelation of who he is. Revelation of his will for our lives. Revelation of his plan for salvation. And understand that when Jesus is talking here, he's not primarily talking about homosexuals or adulterers or any other particular kind of sinners in that whole vein. He's talking about the religious people. He's talking about the Jewish religious and political leaders. Earlier, he had talked about their continual rejection of the light of revelation that God had given through the prophets in the Old Testament. Listen to Jesus describe it here. He's talking to these religious leaders, and he says, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. The Jewish leadership had studied the Old Testament scriptures. They, had, they knew the teachings of the prophets, but ultimately they rejected the scriptures and the one to whom they pointed, the coming Messiah. And therefore their rejection of that light from God intensified and increased their guilt. And as that guilt was made apparent, it increased their hatred towards Christ. You see, we need to understand, again, going back to biblical anthropology, that sinners without the Holy Spirit, sinners in their natural state, like you and I once were, fear and despise the exposure of our sin. Fear and despise the exposure of our sin. Jesus alluded to this back in chapter 3. When he's talking about how Nicodemus needs to be born again of the Spirit in order for him to know God, he later on says in verse 19, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. The world hates the light of God's truth. That may not be apparent. It may not be obvious. They may even sit in churches where the light of God's word is being proclaimed. But in their true heart of hearts, they hate the light and will not come into the light, lest the sins of their hearts be exposed. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, he says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Cain and Abel is where the first obvious example of this war played out. But it's always been true ever since then that the world will hate the righteousness 
of those who are born again and saved by the grace of God. In Shakespeare's play, Othello, the main villain is a man named Iago. And Iago is driven by jealousy to attempt to murder the friend of Othello, Cassio. And there's a very telling moment in that play, one line that explains all the motivation, all this murderous intent in the heart of Iago is explained in this one comment that he makes about Cassio. He says, He hath a daily beauty in his life that makes me ugly. He hath a daily beauty in his life that makes me ugly. You see, our calling in this stage of the plan of redemption, our calling is to live by the light and to expose sinfulness. Paul says this very clearly over in Ephesians chapter 5. Listen to our calling. This is what we're called to as as Christians, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 5 of Ephesians. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners. Don't be unequally yoked, he's saying. Do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. You see, we are called by living lives that reflect the light of Christ under his lordship to expose the sinfulness around us to walk as children of light. And if we don't do that, there will be no conviction of sin because, praise God, God is not done saving people through Christ. There are still people who need to be reached with the gospel, still people who, the spirit, who are experiencing the Spirit of God working in their hearts and minds to take away that rebellious nature and to open their eyes and open their ears and change their hearts so that they would understand and believe. But the first step in understanding and believing is to come under conviction of sin. Because if there is no conviction of sin, there's no need to hear about a gospel. There's no need to hear about salvation. And so, as we go about living under the Lordship of Christ, we are going to get two reactions. Jesus refers to both of them here. Some of them will hate us, but some of us will keep our word. Some of them will keep our word. And that brings me to my final point. How are we to respond to this hatred? Jesus doesn't tell us to take up arms. He doesn't tell us to go out in our backyard and build a bunker and put six months worth of food and supplies there to prepare for the oncoming persecution and war. He doesn't tell us to form an anti-defamation society to protect our legal rights. He tells us what to do very clearly beginning in verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. That's our calling, to bear witness to Jesus Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit. Jesus spells out that mission pretty clearly over in Matthew 10. 
Let me pick up the reading, verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for you are to say what will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Well, how do we bear witness? Well, just by the things we've already talked about. We bear witness by displaying before the world our otherworldly nature. This new heart. This new life. That Christ has given to us by grace. And by proclaiming Jesus Christ is our risen Lord. That's our witness. That's all that God expects of us, is to go about our normal callings in life and to bear witness by living an otherworldly style of life and to proclaim Jesus as Savior and Lord. That's our witness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. No matter how much the world is against us, no matter how it may look like the church is being defeated and marginalized and destroyed, it says here, according to Paul, that we are always being led by Christ in triumphal procession, and through us spreads us the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance, or maybe better put, a stench from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? You see, this is going to become more and more a visible reality in your life as the culture turns more and more against the church, is that we are to bear witness to Christ in the ways that we've talked about. And as we do so, we are going to be the fragrance, the aroma of Christ. And to most of the people that we interact with day in and day out, that aroma is going to be a stench of death. It's going to throw before them God's judgment and their guilt and their rebellion before God and they're going to hate us for it and they're going to reject us and they're eventually going to persecute us for it. But for those who are being saved, our witness to Christ is the aroma of life. It's the aroma of hope. It's the aroma of peace. It's the aroma of knowing God. And to those who are being born again, to those who are being called by the Holy Spirit, they're going to come under conviction of sin, they're going to confess that sin, and they're going to believe that Jesus is raised from the dead and that he is the Lord of all, and he, they will make him the Lord of their lives, and they will join us in this great, growing church of Jesus Christ. The first half of my life, it seemed like the church waged war, this war that Re Revelation 12 talks about, Seems like for the first half of my life, back in more of the kind of the fundamentalist stage of the evangelical church, that the church waged war by separating superficially from the culture, by forming our own Christian businesses and our own Christian music and our own Christian TV and our own Christian society, and then lobbing bombs from a distance and fighting superficial battles in the courts and the legislatures and the public square. But in the last couple of decades, what I've noticed is that the church has taken an entirely different tact as the world has won so many of those kinds of battles. The church has decided to conform. 
The church has decided to buy into the idea of moral tolerance and spiritual tolerance. And the church has begun to look an awful lot like the world. And I'm here to say both of those strategies are losing strategies for the church in America. The winning strategy is here. Bear witness to Christ by your otherworldly lifestyle, your otherworldly heart, and your submission to the Lordship of Christ and proclamation that Jesus Christ is our risen Savior and Lord of all. God will bless that witness. In Revelation 12, it says, The church conquers Satan the dragon by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Come what may, our calling is to bear witness to Christ. That's all that he expects of us. May he enable us to be faithful here in State College and in our area. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder of your eternal and cosmic perspective on the conflicts that we face every day in life. Thank you for the reminder of what spiritual reality is. Lord, may we live accordingly. May we show the world what it means to live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. May we be a display of his mercy, his love, his peace. May the world be changed through our bearing witness to the one who can change the world by his grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.